Today, we've got Gavin McInnes, who's joining us from New York. Gavin will be in Australia shortly as part of his national tour, um, discussing a number of subjects. Uh, Gav, thanks for taking the time to speak with us today. Thanks for having me, fellow hoser. How's it going, eh? <laughs> yeah, very good. Before we um, turn the mic on, I was just speaking with Gavin. Um, some of you may know that, that I'm originally from Canada, so we've been talking about uh, some uh, well, I guess famous, famous in quotations, Canadian punk bands and a little bit about um, hockey back in Canada. Um, we might as well start it there. Do you still listen to, you know, punk and do you skew into metal and are you still a fan of all these these bands in the genre? You know, it's funny you say that. I've been getting into Australian punk in a big way. It seems like there was a real epoch there uh, in the late 70s and early 80s with the celibate rifles and the hard-ons and the cosmic psychos and of course the birthday party and Nick Cave and all that. And then there, and this is just one man's take, right? I'm not an expert, but, and then there was uh, a break and now there's all these new bands that are amazing. Like I, I'm totally addicted to um, the chats. I'm on Smoko. So leave me alone. I'm on Smoko. <laughs> um, what okay? So, so you're obviously still still a fan of the music. One of the things I, I'm I'm a little bit more of a metal guy. One of the things that's always bugged me about punk is the way that punk has gradually very much skewed into commercial music. So uh, there's a lot of people who call themselves punk fans, but they don't really skew beyond listening to like Green Day and Blink 182. What's your no? Well, I guess, slow down. Can I interrupt you there? Of course you can. That's an American phenomenon. Is it America? took punk, and they did two things with it. First, they invented hardcore, which is really just American punk. So they took the Sex Pistols and the Clash and all that, and they said, let's take it down all the frills, no no blue hairdos, none of that stuff, just sneakers and sweatshirts and, and minor threat, and we'll just go as fast as we can. That's the quintessential American thing to do. Like with the word color, they take out the U and they go, it's just C-O-L-O-R, boom, let's do it. Done. Nice and fast. Fast, cheap, and easy. But then in the 90s, they started this like anthemic singing <laughs> and like face to face and the SoCal bands with those big, huge shorts mm. that look like giant pants, really. Face to face. I remember that band when I was in high school. Oh, yeah. God, I hate that kind of music. That's actually when I said, all right, boys, I'm done. Bye, punk. It was real. It was fun. It wasn't real fun. So what, uh, a lot of the stuff that I would listen to is stuff like the exploited, cryptic slaughter, um, you know, black flag. Yeah. So what, where does that sort of skew in 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 the traditional punk sense then? Is that just hardcore? Is that uh, crust? Exploited or couldn't be more punk. Yeah. You know the exploited uh, – Twisted Sister came out in the late 70s when everyone in, in New York was all about uh, rockabilly and Grease and Sha Na Na and Happy Days. So they had no audience and then they went to Britain where glam was still big and they were popular. But guess who their roadies were? I have no idea. The exploited. Yeah, the right. exploited. They had Waddy carrying their amps and stuff. <laughs> D. Snyder's coming out here not too, uh, not too far away. I think he's doing some sort of spoken word tour. He's, um, it's, it's really funny the way that it is because Twisted Sister traditionally, as you would consider them, wouldn't be a heavy metal band today because you know they sort of skewed into that. No, glam. they're glam. Yeah, they're but glam. Um, and that's really what punk is. Punk is an evolution of glam that was poorer kids who were more angry and less kind of fun in a way, more malicious. They were like evil glam. <laughs> so it's do you consider it quite a wide genre? Because like I would still listen to bands like The Misfits, but I'm not really into the Ramones. And I certainly the, – the band that I have – you mentioned them already that I have a really hard time identifying as punk is The Clash because you can hear them on like 
traditional soft rock FM radio these days. Well, they were vilified for going to CBS. And so they said, all right, well, if we're not punk to you, then we're not punk to me. And they started doing, you know, soul covers, Stand By Your Man, and reggae and dub. And they still have some great punk jams, though. But uh, as far as what I listen to today, I have three kids. And I used to like southern rap, like Memphis rap with lots of swear words in it. I used to like lots of metal. And I used to, I still like punk rock. But you can't listen to that in the car or in the house with the kids. They leave the room. They hate it all. Yeah. Well, so yeah. I stopped sort of listening to music. I, I think I might be done. Although I got to say, so I just found my list here. These are some of the Australian bands that I've been really enjoying. Eddie Current, Suppression Ring, Dune Rats, Drunk Moms, Jurassic Narc, of course, The Chats, as I said, The Smoko, and Miniskirt. All amazing bands. I think there must be a resurgence with speed in Australia because – you have to be doing amphetamines to make great punk. <laughs> well, the thing, speed? Uh, yeah, but everything costs. Um, when was the last time you were down here? Uh, never a clock. Never. Okay, so first time. Oh, this this will be fascinating. Everything costs plus fifty percent down here. So our our two major parties. You've got the Liberal Party out here, which is which would be the Republican Party. I know it doesn't make sense for the Conservative, and then you've got the Labour Party, which is really the NDP out here. And so everything has been heavily unionized for a number of decades. Uh, you add that right. to the fact that we sit in the bottom corner of the earth and the transportation and logistical costs of getting things down here. Everything costs a lot of money down here. You know, Northern Europe gets away with welfare uh, and unions and socialism because they don't have open borders and they there's a sense of camaraderie there and a homogeneity and it's much worse than it would be if it was the free market but they can still survive because there's not moochers mm. but as soon as your borders collapse and you're far left you're doomed i mean it's it's killing us it's killing california with all the illegals and it's killing germany it's killing it, it almost killed italy italy managed to wake up uh, it's killing greece and I, what are you laughing i'm not saying anything Oh, I thought that I heard you laughing. But if Australia has big unions, big leftist policies, and then open borders, the economics don't add up, boys and girls. You're going to be screwed. So we'll talk about that in a second. But what are your – if this is the first time that you're coming down here, what are your existing thoughts and, I guess, opinions on, on Australia? My opinion of Australia is that it is a old-fashioned country when it comes to genders – and there's the guys and the gals. It's like boys were boys and men were men. You know, it's the beginning of Archie Bunker. Yeah. And you'd go to a pub in Sydney and it would be like a pub in Britain in 1980 where the men are up there at the front and there's a few Sheilas at the back and they're minding their own. Um, and kind of a machismo culture in a way. That's That's traditionally Australian, I'm saying, not today necessarily. And they also had great – Border laws, great immigration, meaning not a lot of immigrants coming in. I think both of those things are changing and the men are getting more ashamed of being men and women are getting more feminist and dogmatic and annoying. <laughs> and uh, they want to be you know, at the front of the line all of a sudden. And not only is that bad for most countries, it's very un-Australian. Australia with open borders and Sheila's uh, running the show, is that's, that's no longer Australia. 
I'll tell you the sort of numbers. So, so you're wrong about that. Once you get to the cities, you'll notice that the pubs are very metropolitan. But the divide is um, it's very, very clear between the country regions and the city regions. I don't know if it would be as pronounced as you know the difference, I guess, between like New Orleans and, and suburban Louisiana. But there's certainly the, the blokey fellows that you talk about are, are quite apparent as soon as you get a couple hours outside of the city. But um, they were doing – they released the immigration numbers, I think. And last year we had – I think the number that came through was 550,000 um, immigrants who had come through. Now, what you have to remember is in a year, in a year, and our population is oh, 25 Jesus. million. So, I, I mean, you do those numbers. Um, well, it's very similar. That's why I call it Hot Canada too, because Canada has a similar problem. I don't know if they have the same number of immig- immigrants, but what everyone always says about big countries like that is, oh, there's plenty of room. It's almost like they, they think they're playing with Lego pieces, and they go, they can all go in the top. No, they congregate in the cities. They go to Melbourne. They go to Sydney. And that's exactly what we're seeing here. They all they all fall into there. And so the, the Sydney housing market is very similar to Vancouver and New York. It, for a number of years, it was always on par with like London and Tokyo. But uh, we had lived in the uh, what we call the inner west of Sydney because Sydney obviously borders the ocean. And nowadays to get um, a, a traditional 1940s single-level three-bedroom house with one bathroom is about $2.3 million. And a lot of that uh, – U.S. dollars? Well, Australian dollars. So what would that be? Probably about one point eight. Uh, one point yeah, seven, one point eight. Those are New York prices. If yeah. you're not in a, a bad neighborhood, and um, and and we're seeing the exact same thing that you see from Vancouver, where a lot of it appears to be Chinese money, uh, being being rushed out of the country, and they're buying these properties and not renting them out. So apparently, the situation is very similar between Vancouver and and Sydney and, and even Melbourne, where uh, you know these houses are effectively paid for in cash between one family or multiple families, and they just sit there vacant. They're really just parking their money, and it sent housing you know through the roof while immigration as a whole lands up in, in one of these two major cities. And they're now predicting that Melbourne will surpass Sydney as the um, largest city probably within the next 10 to 20 years and sydney's got about 5.5 million people and that's that's as big as we get down here well you're really on the precipice of of catastrophic irrevocable changes i mean i'm not going on this tour to to scaremonger i'm going on this tour mostly to do comedy but when when people ask me about politics and about australia i'm happy to talk about it but i it you get accused of being this sort of right-wing hate monger when you just speak like basically everyone's dad yeah. About politics, the the the, I, the 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 political spectrum has shifted to the middle is now far far left, and everyone to the right of that is a Nazi. The far right is basically centrism. I mean, mm. Obama would be considered far right. Bill Clinton, those guys were against gay marriage. Hillary Clinton. Don't you find it weird now when uh, you know we'll we'll get a little bit more into all this stuff in detail, but nowadays when um, you know, with John McCain's passing, even when you look at W as the president, these guys are are now upheld as like these, um, you know, pinnacle angelic figures comparatively to what they were known at, you know, maybe 10 or 15 years ago when I originally moved over here. Well, John McCain is, is a unique uh, scenario because he started bashing Trump recently. So the left uh, loves him because the enemy of my enemy is my friend. They're willing to play dirty pool. They'll take on – they'll embrace radical Islam as long as it's anti-Trump. They, 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 that, like, yeah. they like MS-13. They say, you know, those people – Trump called them animals. That's not fair. 
Meanwhile, there was an MS-13 gang member who had just murdered a girl, and his name was literally Animal. <laughs> Can you clarify this for us down here? What is MS-13? Oh, MS-13 is a brutal Hispanic gang that deals heroin. And um, because of our prison system passing around prisoners from prison to prison as some sort of money scam, MS-13 can spread like the Italian mafia in Italy and recruit at all the different prisons. So you get these refugees from a violent hellhole like, say, El Salvador, and they come up here and they're ready to rock right out of the gate. So it's it's probably the most violent gang we've ever had. It's not like Bloods and Crips where they keep to themselves. These guys spread into the suburbs and they deal heroin and Oxycontin to middle class people. I mean, they are they're an invading army, really. Is is, is this what is they are. it's interesting. It's similar because um, I've got a few friends who work as as coppers in the prison system, and you hear about it a little bit in the media. But as you know, a lot of this stuff. Um, isn't reported for, for fear of you know, retribution and racism. But apparently that's a big issue down here in Australia as well is the recruitment grounds for uh, Islamic terrorism is within prisons now because they, they come in and effectively, yeah. you know, you get divided between you, you know, your white or your black or your belief systems. And now these are apparently hotbeds. So when they come out, they, you know, just naturally gravitate towards um, an Islamic community. And these opinions are now sort of embedded in them. And they're trying to figure out what to, what to do about this because if you're on a, you know, two, three, five, seven year jail term, how do you remove them from this form of indoctrination? Well, there's Muslims are a unique immigration group. They, they seem more averse to assimilation than, than other groups. And in Britain right now, I think Muslims run the prison. Like Tommy Robinson was just in solitary confinement for many months. Can you explain this to me? What, what, cause I remember watching this. He, went to a demonstration or or a public rally and then he was jailed for inciting something is that is that what happened the, the actual charge is contempt of court um it's usually a slap on the wrist not jail time he didn't really get a trial he just got whisked away to prison immediately and his contempt was there was a sentencing for these muslim pedophiles they they have entire oh, these, networks these there grooming where they that's right yes Hundreds and hundreds of girls raped. So they caught three of them and at, he was waiting outside and they have what they call the prison bag. So when you go to sentencing, you know you're not going to be allowed back home. So you bring your bag and, it, and Tommy said, how do you feel about the sentencing? How do you feel about the sentencing? I see you got your prison bag. That's it, right? And he live streamed that. That was seen as interfering with the, um, with the trial even though they were there for their sentencing. So it's not like the trial was just beginning. And he was instantly whisked away. And then in prison, he could only eat canned tuna because the Muslims run the kitchen. So they were going to put feces or poison in his food. Uh, he couldn't be out with the other prisoners who are like playing table tennis and watching TV and playing pool and having pretty minimum security kind of a fun life, the kind of life you'd imagine an insider trader has to face. But uh, Tommy couldn't be with any of them. They'd, they'd come to his cell and harass him through the window. So he had to lock that window and cook in the summer heat. Uh, all because he dared embarrass pedophiles. <laughs> and and w with this loose association of voices like the two of yours, are, are you in contact like with him or, or how do you view your relationship with other personalities like uh, Milo, Stephen Crowder, Ben Shapiro? It's It appears like a pretty loose network, but you guys are saying a lot of the same things with particular no, differences. We couldn't be closer. My relationship with Tommy borders on gay. <laughs> okay. I mean, uh, right. yeah. 
I, and my relationship with Milo, I made out with him. How gay is that? Uh, and my relationship with Lauren Southern is if my wife would ever pass, God forbid, after a period of mourning that would be reasonable, it would be quite long. But after I sort of dusted myself off and got back on my feet, I would immediately start courting Lauren so as mom too. She was down here recently as well. I don't know if you know that. Um, oh, yeah. And so I was talk to her about it every day. Cool. And so was Milo. And I don't know if you heard this in, in something that is absolutely unprecedented because Milo came down here and we went and, and saw him at his gig. They needed to you know, put on extra staff from the police force. And I can't remember if it was the Victorian police force. I think it was. They – sent a bill to Milo for police protection uh, totaling around 60 grand. And of course, they're not going to pay it. But this is the first time I've ever heard of something so frivolous for a personality in people's fans who don't incite violence, but solely for the purpose so that police could protect the people who want to go see him at the venue. That's not how police policing works, by the way. I you understand. don't <laughs> give someone a bill. I'm not talking to you per se, but I'm saying you don't give someone a bill for for the reaction someone else had. It's not a private industry. Your job is to pr- protect the public, and that includes tourists on visas, and make sure they don't get killed. You don't get to invoice for that. But this is a common trick that's been going on for a while. That What they like to do is, like Jesse Aguera did this in Berkeley in California. He um, He tells the police to stand down. There's a big riot outside the Berkeley campus where Milo was doing a talk. There's fires everywhere. And now Jesse, the mayor, can say, look, man, I love Milo. I love free speech. But as you can see, when there's a speech here, there's fires and riots and people getting hurt. So I'm afraid I can't have Trump supporters doing talks in my town. Sorry. And it's a way to sort of pass the buck. So you create violence. You allow it to foment. And then you shrug and say, can't have that guy here. This is pro- it's it's a good segue to get into this. So you've now explain this a little bit to me because I only heard this heard about this because you're coming down under. So um, a, a lot of people down here are unfamiliar with Antifa because this is it's a little bit more of a, a North American thing at this point in town time. But you've now created sort of a group to specifically fight this. So can you explain Antifa for a lot of our listeners and and I guess your involvement or what you're doing about this? Um, Antifa is it, – it varies across the globe. I mean they're very established in t- places like Germany and uh, Europe where they started in World War II as, as communists who fought fascism. Is that really um, where they connect their sort of lineage to? I had no idea about that. Yes. That, their flag hasn't even changed since then. Right. Okay. And they do strange Italian chants at rallies like, ah, da fascista, anti-fascista, like speaking Italian. It's bizarre. Right. Um, Meanwhile, the commies have done a lot more damage than the Nazis since they started. So they may have started in the right place in 1940, but it's certainly not that anymore. And now there's – it's a lot of different things. But the majority of it is rich kids who live at home, uh, who are the sons of academics, sons of professors, all rabid Marxists. They somehow get away with calling themselves communist anarchists, which I'll never understand. But the dangerous part is there's some other places like in Berkeley, which is near uh, – uh, sorry, San Francisco, which is near Oakland and Berkeley, where they take in these sort of sad waifs, these junkie kids, these these punk rockers who are addicted to drugs. They take them in, give them a home, a family, and then um, they uh, they these kids feel indebted to the ones who took them in. So they they want it, when they go to a rally, they want to stab someone or 
you know, just like any orphan would if he was taken in by a, a, an evil gang. And so they get really violent, these, these wayward waifs, these orphans uh, who have been taken in. And then they often end up killing themselves or they get raped. You know, there's this guy, Mika Rhodes, who ran the Portland Antifa, and he was raping these poor kids. Um, yeah, M-I-C-A-H-R-H-O-D-E-S. This is this is what happens to these. Or There was a kid named Noah in New Orleans who, who committed all kinds of acts of vandalism uh, when Trump was elected on behalf of Antifa. And then he saw his sentence was looking like 10 years, so he killed himself. Yeah, okay. Um, so what it's a mess. It's, and it's got nothing to do with anti-fascism, really. It's, it's well-funded, uh, a lot of sort of lawyers, a lot of female lesbian lawyers seem to be at the top of it and they get Soros money and they don't spend it on the lower, the lower echelons. And then you have these, uh, the, the Antifa that are sort of like the foot soldiers of these rich leftists, corrupt leftists. And they just, their job is just to riot and, and hurt people. Can you explain? And they do. Uh, you know, we'll talk about your organization, but you mentioned Soros, and Soros is one of those names that's up there with, you know, NWO or N, uh, New World Order and Illuminati. What is there any actual connection of sort of Soros funding all this sort of stuff, or is it all? It sounds a lot of you know Alec Jones type stuff to me. Yeah, well, Alex Jones is a conspiracy theorist who's often right. The majority of the time, he's right. In fact, I could list on one hand the times he's been wrong, and. Uh, the deal with Soros is all you need to know about Soros is from his own books. Like all these allegations that he was a Nazi, they come from Soros. He talks about when he helped the Nazis round up the Jews. And can you imagine someone on the right surviving that kind of scrutiny? They have the gall to call him a Holocaust survivor when he helped Nazis round up Jews. And he goes, I was only 14. I was just an innocent angel. And then he looks back on it and says, I don't regret it, though. It was the best time of my life. And you go, if Trump knew someone who knew someone who said that, we wouldn't hear the end of it. Because it's, but because it's Soros and he donates billions to left-wing causes, um, we, they give him a pass. Now, does he hand Antifa checks every time they stab someone? No. But I believe that uh, when he funds Black Lives Matter and, and other groups that are above them, they help organize it. They, they, they're the ones who make the signs. They're the ones who get it out there. So there are well-funded people above the Antifa thugs, but I don't think Antifa are smart enough to, to get paid. Although a lot of protesters will get like 100 bucks. I've met them. Really? Where they get a one-pager on what the protest is about. This isn't Antifa now. This is like – any kind of liberal rally. They get a one pager on what the protest is about and they just go there and for a hundred bucks. And that's definitely Soros. Now, to get conspiratorial, I can't prove this, but I think that he has some homes. Like I've heard he has two homes that are, that some, um, uh, activists live in, in Oakland that take in these wayward kids, these street kids and help them become Antifa. So that's probably the closest that an Antifa bum would get to Soros money, but he still has a massive influence, and and he's open about it. Like, check out the kind of money the Soros Foundation has donated to left-wing causes. It's a lot. Yeah, right. Okay. Um, so how do you see, you're talking about Soros and, and uh, I guess, it admissions of Nazi sympathizing. Now, if again, if we go to your Instagram in Anal Chinook in this band that used to play in, there's photos of you, you know, with swastikas and stuff, and especially with your role sort of as a as a provocateur. <laughs> how um, at, at, do you have 
a hard and fast line yourself of when it's sort of okay to do this versus when you're really just dude, trying to dude, dude. annoy people? I have a swastika on my chest crossed out. Right, okay. Uh, he's, well, that makes sense. But uh, That's so, the way these stories go, you know? You, you have a, a swastika crossed out and people just hear the first three words, four words, you have a swastika – and then the story gets legs. That's that's the kind of scrutiny we have to go under. Didn't you wear a swastika? Yeah, crossed out on my chest. We got we got beat up by Nazi skinheads on a daily basis back then. It was a war. So how do how do you view yourself these days? Like in terms of, I almost find it a bit sort of Kaufman esque. But do you consider yourself a, a comedian, a political commentator, a, a spoken word artist, a provocateur? Uh I kind of see myself as an artist and a fighter and I've been – my pugilism is with ideas instead of fists and the art is using the language to, to tell stories and to get a message across and to change the world. My highest priority right now is, is getting more families, you know, less divorce, more proposals, more marriage, more babies. I don't care what race you are. Or who you are, as long as you're just sticking with by your wife, making more kids, and and being employed. Um, but as far as what my profession is, I don't know. I guess I'm a TV host on the internet. Yeah. I, I, have you always held? Because um, uh, I mean, you were one of the founders of Vice, and so when I think about Vice as a brand, I don't connect that with sort of the idea of a of a nuclear family and a man who works a white collar job. So how? How did you get involved in Vice, and how have your, I guess, have, have your opinions mutated into this person, or what was sort of the your path? Yeah, I think I, I kind of screwed up. I mean, when I was at Vice, I was a young man. We started it when I was 22, and we were punk rockers, and we were in bands, and we were doing drugs, and we were partying, and we were having threesomes, and we were getting in fights and jumping off buildings <laughs> and crashing cars, and it was like jackass. And I don't think there's anything that wrong with that. I maybe went a little too long. Like I went well into my 30s with that. And I, I, I wish I got married sooner. I wish I had these kids sooner. But it's, I think it was just a normal evolution for a young man. My original stories were, were about sex, drugs, and rock and roll. That was literally the title of our first Greatest Hits book. And now that I have kids, I'm more about kids. So I don't necessarily regret uh, any of that party talk, but uh, definitely as an adult dad now, I think people need to grow up. Now, I'm not saying don't sow your wild oats, but I'm seeing 35-year-olds, 40-year-olds playing video games for six hours a day, unable to propose to their girlfriend who they've been dating for 10 years. I mean, we really have these wrinkled teenagers, this perpetual adolescence that's totally out of control. Now, did I foment that with Vice? Yeah, maybe. But uh, that doesn't mean that uh, <laughs> you don't have to grow up just because you read a magazine I wrote in the early 90s. I was listening to, um, well, I guess between you and I talking, another great Canadian, in my opinion, another Alberta boy, Jordan Peterson, talk about sort of the the values and meaning in life um, as he does from a philosophical point of view. And he was saying a lot of these sort of same things of why people these days are so empty. And it's because they're you know, filling their time uh, with things that that don't matter, and a lot of this could be media or video games, and talking about you know the idea of the most important thing that you'll do is raise kids uh, because they they provide meaning if you never have it. And as we'll talk about a little bit, talks about all these you know barren women as they enter into their forties and fifties. You sound like you're saying a lot of those 
same sort of things. You know, what, well, what, I've experienced the joy of fatherhood and I want to share it. I want to share my joy. I see all my friends, my childless female friends that I went to high school with and they're miserable and they're saying, they're asking me dating advice and I feel like saying, honey, you're 45. That ship has sailed. Uh, I don't have any advice. No one wants you. You waited too long. You focused on your stupid career that you don't even like. Uh, what have you done, dummy? You screwed up. You bought, you bought that whole myth hook, line, and sinker. And, and you know, we, we're Canadian. We started drinking illegally at maybe 14, 15. By the time you're 25, Big you've bears. probably done <laughs> – pardon me? Big bears. Big bear yeah. 40s. Yeah. You've probably done a shoebox worth of Coke, a air conditioner box full of marijuana, and enough beer and booze to fill a swimming pool, an Olympic-sized swimming pool. And you go, nope, I need to keep partying. I'm 25. I need to keep on rocking. And, I mean, by 30, if your oats aren't sown, you have mental problems. How much Coke do you have to do? So, well, do you – because one of the things that uh, I never considered when I was listening to Jordan Peterson that came out a little bit later is that a lot of his philosophical ideas come from the necessity of having religion and a god. Do you believe in any of this or or have these sort of um, infected your viewpoints? That's the epiphany you have too when you you have kids. I was an atheist my whole life. Then I had kids and I – realized that God exists and I started going to church. I had them baptized. I was baptized Roman Catholic and I go to church every Sunday and just sit in awe. I even like the church itself, the the fact that it was built there. It just seems so reverent and so thankful and you turn around to your neighbor and you say, peace be with you and it's so fulfilling and I just see all my old high school buddies missing out on all this and all these sad old dog moms, you know, Femke Jansen's got – um. Uh, a pile of balloons because her dog just turned to 18 and she had a big birthday party for him. <laughs> and you think, Jesus, do you have any idea how sad you look? Is she still it's that attractive? Though? I haven't it's seen a... her since Goldeneye. You know what your dog is thinking at his birthday? He's thinking food, 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 sex, territory, territory, food, 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 sex, sex, territory, territory, food, 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 sex, food, food, food. He's not thinking, well, what are you doing sitting in my chair? You keep anthropomorphizing this and it's almost like you're – you had a miscarriage stuffed at a taxidermist and you're dancing around pretending you're a mom. Sorry. <laughs> so, it didn't work out for you and it's not going to. When, uh, when preaching this message, uh, as I said to you before we started the recording, I go, it, most oftentimes it comes off as quite abrasive. You say that you want to tell the world this. Have you thought about trying to maybe deliver this message in another way besides um, – well, I don't know. I think we both know what we're talking about, but it, it, it comes across combative a lot of the time. I'm, I'm a New Yorker. I've lived here since the 90s. And uh, though I was, I'm British, you know, my parents are Scottish. I was born in England. I grew up in Canada, moved to America when I was 29. But, you know, in New York City, you just – you don't have time for bullshit. So it, you can't or you get sucked in. So you see the homeless guy and he's got his spiel about, hey, man, I lost my metro. And you just go, no. And walk, and it just saves a lot of time. Yeah. And the next thing you know, you have no time for frills, no time for bullshit. And when people start, or you know, I'll I'll just be at a bar and someone will be telling me a long story, and I'll go, "Was I supposed to be listening that entire time? Because I got bored about a minute in, and you're still talking." And then they want to fight you, and then someone else 
grabs the guy and he's trying to beat you up and then <laughs> you go out the back door. I mean, it's just I've been living in conflict since 1999 and it makes my voice uh, come across as a complete asshole. But maybe uh, that's because I've become a complete asshole. So how, how do you um – um uh, you know, re- reconcile religious beliefs. Like one of the big things about them is is to be, um, I, I guess, a, a little bit more more timid and, and pronounced. But you, you still got this very sort of hard New York ability for you. Your your belief in God has that actually uh, changed your personality at all? The only thing it's changed is I don't make fun of the dead. Okay. Uh, I don't speak ill of the dead. I think that's wrong. Uh, I and I follow the Ten Commandments closely. Not coveting your neighbor's wife is a tough one. I don't know how you don't – I have a lot of trouble not coveting in church. Like I'll be sitting there thinking, I wonder what those two are like when they have sex. I wonder what it would look like. I wonder if I could just – if I could see the best sex those two have ever had in their whole marriage. That would be cool to see, like probably when they were first started dating. And I cannot not have those thoughts. But um, So this is you know, the awe that you're talking about when you're in church. <laughs> Oh, I'm in awe of her ass. <laughs> right. um, but you know, yeah. when you have kids, money is, is you want to pass on a normal amount of money. That's not that hard when you work your whole life. But what you really want to pass on to your kids is character and honor and legacy. And those are all within the Catholic Church. So, you know, when I tell people to fuck off, I don't necessarily see that as anti religious. In fact, Tom Shalou is at a a guy who, who helped me out when I was first getting into Catholicism. And I said, what about the death penalty? Aren't you murdering someone? And he says, yeah, you're also murdering someone if they're a mass shooter and they come into a McDonald's and start killing people. Capital, uh, 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 a death sentence, death row is self-defense. This guy's a murderer. We're getting rid of him. That's still within the Catholic Church. Now, a lot of Catholics disagree with that. But uh, – you can still be tough. And th- when you join the Knights of Columbus, you take an oath to defend priests and defend Catholicism. And, and there's, I, I can't really divulge too much, but there's the, the initiation to the Knights of Columbus is, is pretty violent. So I don't see being tough and standing up for what you believe in and not letting people walk over all over you. I don't see that as irreligious. How, how do you end up in Roman Catholicism, which has a, it's, it's very, it's got a very pronounced hierarchy. There's, um, some of my religious friends who consider themselves Christians, and, and I'm sure you'd already be aware of this, um, think of the Pope in this sort of hierarchy as the, um, uh, epitome of, of the devil and anti-Christianity. How, how did you sort of funnel or, or find yourself within, uh, that denomination? I don't have a good answer and uh, I don't think it's important. You know, Charles Murray, in, he's got a great book he wrote for in, interns and it's, he just wrote it as a little like guidebooks. It has things like don't, don't say like too much, but it's called The Curmudgeon's Guide to Getting Ahead. And in it, he says, choose a religion. And he said, it doesn't matter what one, what one. I think his wife may have chosen Amish, some weird religion like that or, or Glenn Beck. He, when he was deciding to embrace religion, he just kept, he had one question. He said, what happened to Gandhi? Is Gandhi in hell? And if they said yes, he went, nah, not for me. Uh, so I think deism is inarguable. You know, the Big Bang, the, this incredible formula, the, the fact that everything works. But you think God works. is very hands-off because deism is the idea that it was created, but there's no God interjecting or, or being involved. In, in I have it. trouble with that, and I talk to, to religious scholars all the time about does God sweat the small stuff? And I have trouble 
thinking that when, if I pray to him that the, that the Mets win against the Yankees, that he's going to screw all the Yankees fans out of a victory because I was praying to him. I, I don't quite understand it. I mean, I had one guy, Ron Coleman, he's Jewish actually, but he was saying, look, someone who can create the universe can handle minutia, like whether you trip down the stairs. But I, I more, you know that movie, um, Prometheus, is that what it's called? Yeah, like uh, the precursor to Alien, where it sort of explains. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they have that guy at the beginning who's like a, an alien, and he drinks some poison or something that deteriorates his body, and then his cells go into the river, and then that becomes life, and that becomes all these different organisms. I guess aliens, actually. Uh, that's how I see religion, is God pushed the first domino, and uh, he created this incredible organism. It actually looks like Pac-Man. If you see the first organism that could eat, it's got like a 100 eyes and these Pac-Man teeth. And he made that knowing it would eventually become a human being. Uh, and that's why we have all these checks and balances along the way. You know, you kill someone, you have nightmares, you're ostracized from society. It's an incredible formula that we're still playing out. We're still getting closer to his original plan. Now – Mormonism or Hindus going to hell, uh, why Roman Catholicism? I honestly think that's us just trying to get a handle on this incredible miracle and maybe screwing it up along the way. I don't really care uh, where you are, what you choose. I mean, I to be honest, I'm so devastated by this uh, molestation thing that's been happening, all these cases that came out. I don't feel like going to my church on Sunday. I, f I think I would rather just go to the Presbyterian one down the street. I don't even know the difference between Presbyterianism and Catholicism. But I honestly just feel like at least for a while switching churches because I'm so disgusted with the reaction to this. You, stri you strike me from the outside as one of the – probably more one of those guys who would like to have multiple wives living in rural Utah. <laughs> that would be wouldn't that be awesome? My only point with multiple wives would be I'd feel so bad if like Rhoda wanted to have sex on Tuesday and I'm like, sorry, it's Wendy's night and she's like, Oh, okay, well I did give you three kids and I'm in love with you, but uh I guess you don't want to have sex with me. I'd be like, No, no, let's actually why don't you come to Wendy's room? So, <laughs> so a lot of, a lot of these beliefs then, you know, Christianity and all these ideas are turn the other cheek, love thy neighbor. So obviously, we, you know, we're going to get into the crux of, of where you've made a name for yourself. Um, being critical of Islam, and we see a lot of that, uh, down here too, of the, you know, the lack of integration of these communities, um, veering off into extremism. How do you sort of, uh, again, reconcile these views? Because you're, you're, pretty antagonistic of a lot of groups considering someone who has you know, recently found God. I, I only am antagonistic about Islam because I think it's unique, especially Islam in 2018. I mean, I have Muslim friends, but my Muslim friends recognize that there's a major, there's something rotten in the state of Denmark. They recognize that there is a real problem here and you don't have to include 9-11. You can start on September 12th, but they, uh, Islam's got a lot of splaining to do, um, and I think there's a, a number of reasons for that. I think the Quran is a very violent book. You know, the second half was written when when he was a warlord, and he's it's not it's not like Christianity in that Christianity had a 2.0. Yes, the Old Testament is harsh, but we updated it. Islam did the opposite. Their update is more violent and harsher than the original. So. You know, I want Islam to assimilate and to embrace Western values, and they seem to be drifting in the opposite direction. You talk specifically, um, 
you know how Islam is, is not a culture, uh, or it's a, rather it's it's a culture. It's not a race. Um, do you want to just expand on this because it, you know probably neither one of us are too familiar with you know what happens in the Arab states, but there's a lot of differences in the Islam that's practiced in areas like Qatar, Bahrain, Iran, Iraq. Do, do you know a lot about these differences and, and I guess the well, the, the more free they are, the less Muslim they are. Really. <laughs> but uh, they, they got Full a stop. saying. Is that it? Next question. They got a saying in Islam: if it ain't Sunni, it's Shiite. And uh, there's incredible conflict there. I mean, the worst place to be if you're Muslim is a Muslim country. There's no place where Muslims are killed more than Pakistan and North Africa and Af- Afghanistan. They are their own worst enemy, literally. So do you know much about why this Wahhabism has taken foundation? Because it, it is pretty much the most sort of violent sect of it, isn't it? Yeah, I th- you're not going to like this. This is kind of controversial, but I think inbreeding is a big part of it. I heard you talk about this on Rogan on, on his podcast. Um, so I guess feel free to give us the, the top level of that again a a major problem with islam is marrying your first cousin and muhammad made it very clear that's there's nothing wrong with that whatsoever and that's just genetically false it is a very dangerous thing to do not just once and twice but for generation after generation you keep doing it and you sort of defy evolution and end up going backwards which is why iran in 1960 looks like the jetsons and iran today looks like a cave because they've somehow gone back in time. And I think inbreeding is a big problem with that. And, and that's a big problem with Muslims in Britain, too, because they not only are they now inbreeding in their in their big countries, they're inbreeding out of a smaller group. And Wahhabism, the only place you should have Wahhabi is with your sushi. And even then, it should be in very small doses. Um, but like people say, you know, we we have a we have a Christianity has a crazy division. It's the guys who think they're immune to snakes. You know about these evangelicals in the south. There's been another guy that was bitten. His brother. I remember reading it in the Southern Baptist, and his brother died from a snake bite some years ago, and he's still doing. It. And then he got attacked by a snake the other day. It was, it's it's funny to me because I, I read all these stories through the DailyMail.co.uk, and the Daily Mail has turned into like this international newspaper that's now reporting. On um, on region specific stories a lot more as opposed to world news. It's, it's pretty fascinating. Well, yeah, and and by the way, it's good to have a positive attitude if you're sick. That can help maybe ten percent. But you cannot defy poison, guys. So say that particular sect tried to take over American Christianity and say we're all immune to snake bites now. Uh, American Christianity would say, yeah, no, I'm afraid not. Uh, I'm still going to be avoiding cobras and pythons and black adders um and so you like uh what's his name urshad her name urshad manji has a book the trouble with islam and and in it she basically says wahhabism uh hijacked the religion and yes that's true but why was the religion so easy to hijack the snake guys couldn't hijack christianity i think there's some sort of bigger problem there now, I want to ask you about a couple of terms. Uh, just reading through your Wikipedia, they talk about you being the godfather of hipsterdom. I can see these sort of correlations, but obviously you are not the guy who I would associate with hipster culture these days. Um, what are your thoughts on that initially? I am to hipsters what Malcolm McLaren is to punk. I was there on day one. I think it happened because I was doing this column called The Do's and Don'ts. And it was basically the do's and don'ts of being a hipster. And when you send out a rule book 
on a daily basis, you end up creating a subculture. So in the early 2000s, Vice and my column and our articles and our parties and the sort of scene reporting of New York and L.A. created hipsters. And they were they were less political back then. And it was like white jeans and ironic T-shirts and Coke and booze and orgies and stuff. And then it kind of morphed and it sort of split into kind of biker wannabes on one hand of the machismo scale. And then these frail metrosexuals who wanted to wear makeup and, and wear a man bun. Because that's and how I now, define it. I have such a hard time with it because I always identify hipsters as the guy with the man bun who makes my coffee. Yeah, that's the, that's the recent uh, incarnation. Is that the word? But uh, initially, it was more like punk rock kind of uh, skateboardery. Like uh, there's a Ninja Sonic was a good example. He had a song. I'm a I'm a tight pants wearing ass nigga. Again and okay. again. Yeah. That was kind of what it was. It was more jackass at the beginning. And then, of course, when I left the helm. Uh, it was taken over by feminists and ruined it because women ruin everything. All right, we'll get onto that in a moment. But first, I want to ask <laughs> you about you've um, traditionally referred to as alt right, but now consider yourself new right. Again, these are terms that I hear, but because I have a job, I don't get to spend twenty four seven listening to bickering on Twitter. Can can you define what – because traditional alt-right, people say, oh, it's the new right. Oh, it's it's infused with racism. Can you define what alt-right is supposed to be? Alt-right started out – Richard Spencer started the term and it was the alternative right and it was meant to be basically the new right. And it did start out kind of benign. And then I don't know if the guy is a Fed or he's getting paid – but it got darker and darker. It got more about anti-Semitism, more about racism, more about white identity politics. And today, the alt-right, which, by the way, is a tiny sliver of the right. Mainstream media keeps trying to pretend that Trump is alt-right and Steve Bannon and me are alt-right. It is a tiny sliver. And half of them are kidding. No, no. A third of them are kidding. A third of them are feds who are just pretending, and a third of them are mentally ill nutbars who generally want a Fourth Reich. They generally want World War II. They definitely want to gas the Jews and all that. We're talking about maybe hundreds of people in a population over 400 million. So a totally irrelevant group, but they they are very similar to Antifa in that they are atheists. They are socialists. They don't want democracy. They don't like Trump, by the way. Now, this is alt-right alt or new right? How are we defining this? The alt-right. The new right okay. is – that's an old term. It, it was around in Australia in the, in the 80s, I believe. There's, if you look up new right on Wikipedia, you'll see it's always been sort of a libertarian conservative thing that's socially liberal and fiscally conservative. Basically normal stuff like your dad. Your dad is new right. Everyone's dad is new right. Okay. So who would who would actually be alt right then? So if you because all of this is still when you apply it to American politics is about sort of the Republican Tea Party. So how, where would you find sort of an atheist anti-Trump alt right? Considering alt right came to Richard power on, on the back of Trump. So that's that's it. So it's it really has no real connotations then to. It's Richard Spencer is one. Uh, Chris Cantwell is one. Uh, I guess Jared Taylor maybe, but not really. 
Uh, I think those guys like John Derbyshire and Peter Brimelow, they drift more into the new right. They're not that hung up on racial politics. I mean, I guess Jared Taylor is. But Jared Taylor, he doesn't want blacks to go back to Africa like Richard Spencer does. Richard Spencer wants an all-white America. But it's just like the way Antifa hogs up so much of the, the political discourse with their bullhorns and their yelling. It's a tiny, tiny group representing a massive swath of the political discourse. They yeah. don't exist. Okay. They don't matter. They don't have political sway. They don't have kids and they never will. They're, I don't even know if they believe what they say. So when we talk about new right, because this is this – is, uh, it's quite fascinating to me because, again, I, I sympathize with Trump. I understand what he's doing. I, I, I get that he says a lot of stuff but I care more about his economic policy. But I would consider myself a little bit more like you, where I'm more of a, a Goldwater, Ron Paul sort of guy. And Trump is not that at all. That they are. The, I disagree. No, you don't think so. Okay. So how do you reconcile the two? Because you know, Ron Paul would talk about things like you know, open borders and and all these sort of you know, limited government. Where Trump is to a degree is limited government, but having tariffs and and all the and immigration. Yeah, yeah, you're right about libertarians are are really weird on borders and I've never quite figured that out. And I have met a lot of libertarians who were for closed borders. I mean, every country has a border. So if we get rid of borders, we're the only one without a border. I don't understand that. How do you not know that's going to be a complete shit show? But outside of that, Trump is pro free market and that there's nothing more libertarian than that. The economy is on fire here in America. Unemployment is at an all time low. Black unemployment has never been lower. And you talk to, you talk to trades guys, you talk to guys who work on the railroads or real estate agents or, or even guys in, on Wall Street and they just go, Jesus, this has got to end at some point. Every day it keeps getting better and better and better. The Dow is at unprecedented levels and there's just a general feeling of, of, of morale is high amongst people because I think men are defined by their jobs and they finally got jobs again. Jobs are back. And what's more libertarian than jobs? I think the rest of it is just minutia. And, and what do you think? So again, talking about this, this, it's, it's a little bit fascinating to me because as you said, sort of, um, alt-right and, and ideas of racism, why has racism or the idea or concept or the narrative uh, become such the big talking point for conservative politics now? Because it's a trick that the Marxists have been doing since the Frankfurt School in the 50s. If your opponent becomes too annoying, call him racist again and again and again, and eventually it'll stick. It's all the left has. In fact, the next election, their motto is hate has no home here. That's their motto. And people don't hate. Again, you no one's heard of anyone alt-right. There's Richard Spencer. There's one famous person. There's one notable human being in the alt-right. It is a sliver. The massive block on the right, the new right, that's everyone you've heard of. That's me. And by the way, the alt-light is a derogatory term the alt-right uses to describe the new right. I don't really care what term you call us, but the new right, a.k.a. the alt-light, is me. It's Stefan Molyneux. It's Lauren Southern. It's Jordan Peterson. It's Dave Rubin, it's Paul Joseph Watson, it's Fleckus, it's Owen Benjamin. It's everyone with a voice. And, and that's what's frustrating too about all these allegations. And what makes them so fruitless is you can look me up. I've got thousands of videos, thousands of articles. I've written way more than Jack Kerouac or Hunter Thompson. I've probably written more articles than Dostoevsky. I'm not saying I'm as smart as him by any means. I've got tomes and tomes of stuff out there and to go through it with a fine tooth comb and find a racial epithet from 
20 years ago is just disingenuous. It's very clear where I stand. It's very clear where Lauren stands. All you have to do is, is talk to us and you can tell that our politics are just normal adult politics. There's nothing racist. There's nothing anti-Semitic. There's, you know, yes, you could argue there's some sexism and some Islamophobia in there, but I think there should be. You're not a healthy dad if you're not a little bit sexist. And and so what do you think? Because what's fascinating to me is is Trump has clearly sort of become the most hated president that we can see from our lifetimes. But what? I don't. Where's he getting that from? I mean, the media narrative on him. Uh, yeah, again, that's as, a as total I said, I, and utter lie. His approval rating right now in August, two years in, is forty-seven uh, percent. For Obama, it was forty-three percent. He is more popular than Obama was at this time. But the media, the fake news, just lies constantly. This summer, 90% of the articles about him in mainstream media were negative. They do not reflect how the people feel. He is dearly beloved. I, I'm not saying that he's not. I'm just saying when I get the media, and you have to remember that we don't, you know, we get some Fox channels, we get Sky, I get that as well. But we have our own national broadcasters out here, and, and you know, as you would know, it's not it's not positive what we get from them. But that's not really my question. The media class, they're lying. They're like the BBC. You know, I was just in England, and I'd be watching something interesting, like uh, it would be about I don't know the history of the airplane or or some mass murderer, the Cray the the Cray brothers back in the fifties. Oh, this is an interesting documentary about thugs. And inevitably, in the last five minutes of the doc, it would go. Of course, in the age of Trump. <laughs> Things are getting dark again. And then they'll have footage of Nazi skinheads from Italy in the 80s and like someone Zeke Heiling. And then they'll have Trump making a similar gesture and they'll go, so we only, we can only wonder if a new breed of craze will come out in the Trump era. And you're like, Jesus Christ, you guys are like a funnel. Everything has to come back to Trump. So, well, this is, this is a, where I'm trying to go with this. Um, in my opinion, Trump can certainly get reelected, but my question to you is, you know, what what play do you think the Democrats are going to come out with? They have nothing. They literally have a sentence: "Hate has no home here." It's on their tote bags. If you go to the DNC site, you can see it's their T-shirts, it's their lawn signs. What kind of boob puts a lawn sign on his front lawn that says? Hate has no home here. What else do you have on your sign? I love my wife. I don't beat my kids. I eat food. I go to the bathroom after I've had a cup of coffee. What kind of idiotic slogan is hate has no home here? It means I'm not racist. And yeah, you know how, how many racists are there? It's so frustrating that we keep talking about racists like they exist. Oh, I'll tell you the other thing that drives me nuts every day when I ha- – and again, I want to get to this question first. But every day when I read the news talking about how the only reason that this woman or person hasn't cheated is only because that she's a woman. But that's that's a separate issue. But what I'm saying is that in the last election, they ran Hillary. She capitulated under Trump. But the closest one to her was Bernie Sanders. And there's videos of Bernie Sanders getting booed off stage by – uh, groups of black Americans who are calling him racist. So what I'm what I'm actually saying is, you know, when they go through primaries, who the hell are they going to pull out to to run against Trump? No one knows. And by the way, Bernie was beloved. I don't I don't appreciate that. My my one of my relatives voted for him. I almost fainted when I found out because the guy's very intelligent. Uh, but Bernie was well loved, especially by young lefties. And Hillary stole. 
the nomination from him. And if uh, yes, there was two black nut bars who grabbed the mic from him at a Black Lives Matter thing because they are mental patients. But I, I don't really think black people hated him that much. I think that he had a better chance of winning than Hillary, unfortunately. And she stole it from him. So I guess that is fortunate ultimately as a Trump guy. Um, but if you would go to a Hillary rally, there was hundreds of Bernie supporters screaming at her and the press totally ignored them. Mike Cernovich is the only one who brought out a camera and documented the, this massive anti-Hillary movement from the Bernie bros. Well, it's like um, there's there's people that would be actually be taking photos of Hillary rallies and, the, and all the – camera angles would only show her on stage because as soon as they went to the auditorium, oftentimes in these venues, there'd only be like 200 people there max in like a a 3000 seat venue. Yeah. Well, that's when I knew Trump would win because he picked up his phone and he turned it around and he showed a, uh, an, an audience in Florida and he sort of did a wide panoramic and just showed them. And you go, wait a minute. I thought you were the loser that everyone hates who has no choice of winning. I'm looking at an ocean of human beings. It was like you couldn't make out any faces. It was just a sea of people. I'm, I'm talking like 80,000. It looked like a Bruce Springsteen concert at Madison Square Gardens. And then you realize, oh, the press has been lying to us all this time. And this is why I'm banned from Twitter and Alex Jones is kicked off. This is why they're trying to kick the right off of Twitter and social media because they don't want the word to get out that we are loved, that we're popular. It's an interesting point. I, I mean, the the internet. Everyone thought it was going to create this place where everyone could share their ideas, and we're seeing that clearly not. It's just creating silos where you only go to hear your own opinion. You've been kicked off these platforms now. If if a um, you know like like CRTV or Fox News, how do you then try to adapt or change people's views when it's all, it's virtually impossible to reach them because of their perceptions? Um, around your message? Well, my message is out. That's one problem that the left has. I mean, there's, as I mentioned earlier, there's thousands of hours and and thousands of pages of content of mine. I also have tens of thousands of viewers watching my show every day. And uh, uh, also things like this tour, like I got the call from Australia because I was banned from Twitter. So the more they try to ban me, the more my message gets out because people go, who is this guy? Look at Alex Jones. He made $5 million when he was kicked off of social media. How did His that happen? His app became the number one app in the country. Right. Okay. And, and Google Google would try to hide it. They'd only show you number two and down because they didn't want to concede that he was now number one. So it's it's a fruitless endeavor to try to shut us down because our audience is already there. Um, we, we mentioned this briefly. So this is sort of the, the other big talking point is your beliefs on feminism. As I said, um, uh, frankly, I, I don't really care about it, but as I said, when I read the news, I'm, I'm getting sick and tired of just reading about how downtrodden women are. The fact that because they got up and went and did their job, that they need to be, uh, you know, renowned for, for being a, a lioness or, or queen. Um, feminism may have had a point. A long time ago, maybe in the 60s, where they said if a woman wants to work, she shouldn't be a pariah. Yeah, that's fair. But since then, the 80s and up, it's just women trying to be men, women trying to be in action movies, women trying to be in the fire department, women trying to be the CEO of Bosch spark plugs. And guess what? They make shitty men. They're not good at being men. Now, I mean, it's. 
it makes sense to me though about the idea of personal empowerment is it just like if if you feel mentally or physically like you're being bullied you go out there and you you take on a challenge so that you yeah, can but they don't take on a challenge like here in new york um uh i gays are everywhere like when you're doing business especially advertising especially fashion obviously uh, you're surrounded by the velvet mafia homosexuals abound and they will grab your ass they'll hit on you you know what you do you say, what are you doing, dude? Are you serious? And he'd say, you know what? You would get this contract a lot faster if you were a little more fun, if you know what I mean. And you go, I'm not sleeping with you for a contract. Are you insane? I'd rather die. You could even go out and get beers with that homosexual who just hit on you. You don't care because you belong there. You're tough. But these women are the whole – so much of the Me Too movement is women just – Unable to handle normal back and forth that happens in the workforce. They get insulted. They get hit on. Someone grabs their ass. Big deal, ladies. We're dealing with millions of dollars here. Lives are at stake. Things get a little rude. You, you tell some unfortunate jokes. You use a, a bad word once in a while. You might say faggot. God forbid you should use a swear word in normal, normal parlance. And these women, they pretend they can handle it, and they just collapse. Here's an example, by the way. i just bore you with one example. So there's a movie, uh, Manhattan uh, – no, no. What's it called? Manchester by the Sea. And it's a really sad movie with Casey Affleck where his kids die. It's fucking horrible. Don't watch it. But um, that the woman who directed that <laughs> – is, is there anything else to that statement? I, f- I almost felt like you were like, that's it. That's my statement. That's don't watch it. this don't, film. I don't like – I don't – I don't handle children under duress very well. I wish my my newspaper would just black out the stories about a toddler being punched to death. But anyway, uh, kids die in it. It's horrible. And anyway, but it did very well and got tons of awards. And the director, it was one of her first times. She decides she's going to persecute Casey Affleck and make him a pariah with her kangaroo court of feminism because him and uh, uh, what's his name uh, Phoenix Joaquin Phoenix with the funny hair lip there. They said to her, hey, man, we're going to bang these chicks in your room. Can we use your room for a bit? And so she had to leave her room and while the, these famous guys banged girls in her – I guess her bed. Uh, and she was mortified. That was kind of a rape. Now, as men, if that happened to you and you had this incredible directorial debut thanks to the benevolence of some famous guys and the two famous bosses – they're your boss – said, hey, I want to bang some chicks. And you know what I would think? I would think, yes. I got one up on the boss. He owes me a favor now. I'll go to the bar. I'll have some whiskey. I hope he doesn't get uh, ejaculate on my pillow. I'll change the sheets. Uh, I'll just spill. I'll spill some Coca Cola on my sheets and then get the maid to bring up new sheets. Um, and I probably wouldn't even do that to be honest. I'd make sure there was no fluids on my pillowcase and I'd be fine. And I would also think this is great news. The boss owes me one. What a great situation. But because she didn't belong in the workforce, she turned it into this big thing where she had been abused. And you think, lady, you don't belong with the big boys here. You can't play with the big kids. Get out of here. Go make some babies. You'd be happier at home. So it's interesting that you mention this because like um, my primary business is in the media field as well. And one of the, the two sectors where I noticed that women are, are you know, 95% in the sectors in the area of marketing and communications and I'm sure you would notice this yourself. Yeah, marketing is really hard. You have to spend some man's money. Isn't that <laughs> – don't they always end up doing what they'd be doing at home? Like they make great real estate agents. Yeah, because they're showing a home. 
That's what they do when you come over here. Let me take you on a tour of our new house. Or they, they're always managing appointments. Like they'll have a little book and, oh, you have a meeting at this time and you have to do this. They're always doing PR and, and, and keeping a schedule. They're basically, they're saying, I'm not no man's slave. I'm my own person. What do you do? Oh, I keep appointments for my boss and make sure that he's, you know, he gets a, the, he has a, his shirts go to the dry cleaner and, and he's not late for this meeting with this person. Oh, so what a wife does, but you do it for a stranger. Okay. Well, congratulations on your liberation. It must be fun being a woman and hearing you roar. <laughs> so, I mean, you've publicly called yourself a chauvinist then, but what do you think about these ideas? Um, well, slow down. Slow down. I said a Western chauvinist. A chauvinist is just someone who is passionately patriotic. A male chauvinist is a sexist who hates women. All right. Okay. So this is another term that, that I've read that's been taken out of context effectively. Correct. Chauvinist just means extremely passionate. So if you're a, a French fry chauvinist, then you don't eat frozen fries. You only have hand cut and they have to be uh, starch removed the night before and then blanched right before they're cooked. So is there any reason why I guess you, you use that term as opposed to maybe a play on like Anglophile or something of you know Western culture? Yes, I'm tricking the left and exposing them. All right, okay. Um, they don't look stuff up. And and so, what do you think of these ideas of men's right? Because we've seen, um, you know, women are now getting appointed to boards without things like merit. But one of the areas that seems to be completely still fifty years ago is men's rights in the area of you know divorce law and alimony and child's rights. Do you do you explore or have opinions on these issues? Do you know how shitty? Uh, custody cases turn out. I didn't really realize this till I started meeting divorced guys. I'm 48 now, so my friends are getting divorced. You get to see the kid on Wednesday at dinner and then every second weekend. That's I, I go to my buddy, I go, that's just a good uncle. And then, you know, in New York, you go to work till 7 or 8 p.m. Kids go to bed at 8. So that Wednesday is shit. That's just like munching on a hamburger if you're lucky, and then they're off to bed. Uh, so that's every second weekend. I see my neighbor's kids every second weekend. <laughs> I'm closer with my neighbor's kids than most divorced dads are with their own kids. And then the sad thing is that they get out of sight, out of mind, and the kids love them less, and they love their kids less. They end up loving their stepchildren more than their own kin. It's it's fucking depressing. But I think the MGTOW guys, you know MGTOW, men no. going their own way? No. I I respect those dudes. They, everything they say is true. There is a war on men. You know, male suicide rate is up. I just don't go in the tank for them because they are about giving up on women entirely. And I don't – I'm not a quitter like that. Like I live in New York City, a liberal hellhole. I'm never leaving. I'm happy to sit here and fight every day. I want men and women to get back together again. I don't like the idea of giving up. You know, the reason that in Proud Boys we have this no wanks rule where you can't watch porn – I want single men to get up off the couch and start dating and I want married men to pay more attention to their wife and not be staring at a computer uh, masturbating. I want them to be masturbating within one yard of their significant other. What's your opinion on this? Is, is this sort of, does this fall into reborn Christianity or is this just the idea of like, hey, mate, get, get off the television and go spend time with people? It, you know, in retrospect, I'm realizing that's what it is, but it started as a dare. It was sort of like that Seinfeld episode where they stopped beating off. Oh, uh, it was a master of my domain. 
Yeah, yeah. Dante Nero is this comedian here in New York, and I would have him on my show a lot. And we were talking about porn, and I can't remember what we were even talking about, probably that it's unhealthy. And he said, I said, we should go 10 days and not look at it, not masturbate, nothing. And he goes, 10 days? Let's do a month. And I said, all right, let's do a month. And we shook on it. And then I'd be texting him going, uh, Dante, are you singing while you walk down the street? And he goes, dude, I have been laid three times this week and I went to the gym and was bench pressing twice my amount. <laughs> we both noticed that we were gaining superpowers and I was just more in control of my situation. If there was sort of a meeting, I would take control of the meeting and be totally on my game. It's, it's almost like when you stop masturbating, you feel like you had a 12 hour night's sleep and a giant breakfast. Uh, and that's how you start the day. You're just better. So we just, started as a thing through trial and error we just sort of accidentally discovered it's got nothing to do with christianity or anything it just works try it well i've, I've, I've married got the kids so yeah no worries <laughs> happy to um you're still uh looking through your instagram we spoke about this briefly before we turned on the mic you still retain at least elements of canadian culture i saw great white north you got some habs gear do, do you consider yourself i just got back i was just in niagara falls and montreal and perth and ottawa you know i i miss canadians a lot they're so you know you say that i'm coarse and it's from new york but canadians swear like hell and they're they're down for a fight they're always like they're very polite but if you spill their pint, they're going to brawl. They're just a very sort of – I know they're seen as sort of polite and quiet, but I find them to be a very gregarious folk. They want to go out and do stuff. They want to cannonball off the dock into the lake. Have you ever seen that uh, – They there was a short skit that runs for a couple minutes about these um, Ontario or Prairie hockey boys. And one of the girls brings her boyfriend over and he's uh, he's sort of this city slicker and they just – pummel the snot out of him you seen it's this comedic skit no i don't think i have i'll have to send it to you it's 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 very good but that's canada in a nutshell it's a fun place to go and people are are interesting there and and by the way speaking of diversity it, it worked for the most part now they used indians who were coming from a british commonwealth just like canada and they used sikhs who are basically indians but uh outside of a, a looming muslim problem as we just saw with the shooting on danforth in toronto it's actually gone pretty good. Dude, what do you think is the difference to that? So like Australia has um, – I mean I don't know if you know the numbers but obviously I'm over here. A quarter of the population wasn't born here and we've got substantial communities of like Lebanese, um, Chinese. Lebanese are great. They assimilate it, well. Yeah, you're right. Well, the, the, the big thing because they came over from the Civil War so we've got about 50-50 between um, – uh, Muslim Lebanese and Christian Lebanese and uh, they, they've settled down and we've got the second highest population of Greeks I think outside of uh, outside of Greece. There's a, Greeks are cool. Yeah. Have you noticed by the way people are only good in bed if they're near the Mediterranean? Now this is – you no. know, well, yeah, I mean, I, I've been there before but I, I, other than that, that's, that's very uh, – No, you need – like women in Toronto are terrible in bed because yeah. there's no link to the Mediterranean. Women in Ottawa are good in bed because they're mostly French and the French are linked to the Mediterranean in that the south of France is on the Mediterranean. So it, it can be very tangential. It can be six degrees of separation. But if there's no link to the Mediterranean whatsoever, don't go to bed with her. It's going to be really boring. This is a this is an interesting talking point that I'll ask you about that I've never heard you comment <laughs> on because it's never really come up. But um, being both Canadians, you know, what do you reckon about French nationalism within the country and the separatist movement? 
You know, I hated it when I was there and I was an Anglophone who spoke French with a thick English accent. Uh, I hated the policing of it. And, and, you know, they literally have, uh, language police who go around with Polaroid cameras photographing your store. But now that I'm not there anymore, I look back in retrospect and go, nice work, guys. I mean, you, you have the same accent you had 400 years ago. That sounds like I'm criticizing them, but it's actually impressive. And there's parts of Queens here in New York that like Astoria, uh, or, or Flush, Flushing is China. Like there's no English signs. Everyone's speaking Chinese on the streets. You honestly don't know that you're not in Beijing when you're in Flushing. And there's parts of, of, um, of South Brooklyn that are completely Russian. Russian signs, everyone speaking Russian. You don't need to speak a lick of English to be there. And those are basically fifth columns that, that exist here in New York. And Quebec, you can't do that. Everyone has to speak French. Everyone has to appreciate French culture. And all signs have to be in French. And it sucks when you're not French. And you live there, and it's probably a big part of why I left. But in retrospect, it's pretty impressive. Hmm. Interesting. Same with the Amish and the Hasidic Jews, by the way. The fact that Hasidic Jews can live in New York City, totally surrounded by this hedonism and drugs and corruption and violence, and still maintain this hundreds-year-old, hundreds of years old culture, is nuts. Maybe it's not a hundred years. What is it? Eighteen. 1850s, I guess. I don't know. I have no idea the origins of Hasidic Jews. It's just amazing that they can retain that culture. I, I think we could take a lesson from both of those groups. Yeah, with that pressure on the outside. Um, yeah. All right. So look, I mean, we're, we're, we're here mostly promoting your, your upcoming tour to Australia, but um, you've it's quite it's quite interesting doing a bit of a retrospective on your career where you found advice, you know, created this sort of hipsterdom and, and where you are at now with sort of these traditional family values and parenting. Um, one of the things that you tend to notice about guys who are a bit shocking like yourself is they can only sort of keep that up for so long. So what, where do you sort of see yourself going in the future with your message and, um, and to, to be really blunt about it, to stay relevant when you know that there's going to be more people like this sort of, you know, carrying this message into the future. As long as the free market carries me, you know, I got scooped from rebel by CRTV because I had value to them and I got offered this tour and it's selling out because there was value there. If, if, you know, no one wanted me in comedy because I was too non-liberal. So, uh, the free market pushed me out of comedy. I just, I just keep doing whatever the, the, the public asks for and if if there's no longer any any interest then i won't do it anymore i i, I don't have to work to stay relevant i just do what i'm doing and if no one likes it i guess i'd stop i mean i've i've gone down a lot of avenues that um that weren't fruitful and i thought okay well that's not something that someone anyone wants me to do you know um but but i was i was in a band called leather ass butt fuck in the early 90s. I was in Anal Chinook. I was in a band called Phlegm in 1986. So this is not an act. I'm not running out of steam. This is just my personality. And if people enjoy it, then I'll happily take the check and do the dance. But uh, if there's no check, I won't do the dance. You know, if it makes dollars, it makes sense. To circle around to what we first began speaking about, when we look at punk, you know, when you look at 80s punk, uh, you know, Reagan was sort of the bastard of that era, but Trump sort of represents the, he's, you know, what he stands for is for the downtrodden blue collar everyman. Why don't you think any people within punk culture are standing up or at least recognizing that 
as opposed to just calling him a, a racist and a bigot? There's very few. I don't know. Like when I was a young, when I was a young man, punk was obviously very left, but there was also a lot of dissent. There was bands like Fear that would have an American Eagle on the front, or uh, there was um, there was the the Forgotten Rebels saying "Bomb the boats, feed the fish." There's Sid Vicious wearing a swastika T-shirt. There was they were able to to you know have some variety, and now it's just like. Trump sucks, Trump sucks, Trump sucks, Trump sucks. I remember, one of my favorite bands from the 80s was Crass. And they said, yeah. uh, they said, what was that song? I think it's called White Punks on Hope. And they said, uh, um, objecting, uh, politics and blindness, a Marxist con. And they said, uh, uh, something about marching in the street. Black man's got his problems and his ways to deal with it. He doesn't need help from you white liberal shits. If you take a closer look at the way things really stand, you'd see we're all just niggers to the rulers of this land. And I thought calling out the, this you know, obsession with racism as a Marxist con is kind of a right-wing thing to say. And these guys were anarchists who hated all government. I'm actually become friends with them since uh, – in my adulthood, we go there to Dial House every summer. Go to church. Um, what? <laughs> go to church. No, they they don't want to come to church. <laughs> Although I think uh, I think G. Voshe, the artist behind the group, I think that she appreciates church in, in her old age. Actually, she took me to a church once. She took me to the oldest wooden church in England. It was it was seven hundred years old, and she showed me this little hole on the side where the lepers would put their hands in. And you would uh, you'd give them change through the hole. So she reveres traditionalism and architecture and stuff. Um, but that it just seemed like things were more free and more colorful back then. That's my real problem with all this censorship is it's anti-color. It's anti-fun. It's anti-variety. Look, that's probably a good place to end it off at. You'll be down here in, uh, in a few weeks. Um, look, this has been a great – Great chat. I wasn't really sure what we were going to have uh, initially. As I said, it's it was mid morning here. It was late afternoon. You've already done what did you say? Five or six interviews. You're already on the bourbons. So I wasn't sure what sort of personality I was going to get out of it. But this has been. Um, I've had a great chat today. I appreciate it, Gavin. Don't thank me. Thank Maker's Mark. I hope you guys have <laughs> Maker's Mark in Australia. And yes. I don't have to bring a case of it. Yes, we do. Seven hundred and fifty mils would cost you about fifty bucks down here. So Jesus Lord. Yeah, I, I enjoy it as well. But um, wait, wait till you see how heavily they tax alcohol down here you're going to be amazed welcome to um uh, as i said welcome to years of a labor government down here everything's going to cost you money so <laughs> good thing i'm rich <laughs> um nice to speak and who knows maybe we'll even get a chance to see you when you're down here yeah i'd love to hang out when we're down when i'm down cool i'll talk to you as soon as we um end this podcast all right g'day g'day all right cheers